So, um, yeah, the MEDD myth, practice, and research implications. So, this is probably one of the most aggravating things to me. And I like talking about things that aggravate me. So, uh, we're going to jump right in. Uh, here are my disclosures. Some of you have seen them before. Um, it's a very long list. Uh, so, but I, I promise that none of those, none of those companies or ad boards or anything else will have any bearing I'm going to speak about today. Uh, the learning objective describes, oh, describes several factors that increase risk for opioid overdose and opioid-induced respiratory depression, identify important drug interactions resulting from CYP P450 uh, drug interactions and P-glycoprotein uh, issues with regard to absorption pharmacokinetics, which may be uh, um, absorption orally or passage over the, through the blood-brain barrier. Site-specific examples where mathematical opioid conversions are risky or more likely flawed. And illustrate the weaknesses of universally accepted morphine-equivalent daily doses. All right, this is particularly a timely um, uh, talk because of the CDC guidelines and the fact that these guidelines uh, speak about morphine equivalents. They, they list 50 uh, and, and uh, 90 as, as uh, not, not so much cutoffs, but sort of um, a, a stopping place where you should stop and think about uh, what you're doing. And then some of the states prior to the CDC guidelines and after the CDC guidelines have, seem to have their own cutoffs. Now, before I, I really even say a word, about how ridiculous this is. The fact that among 50 states, 20 or so of them have opioid cutoffs, and of those 20, I think there's 40 different numbers. All right, so if there was truly a universally accepted morphine equivalent daily dose, then why doesn't every state have the same one? And why, for each state that has developed their own online opioid calculator, why doesn't the state of Washington give you the same answer as the state of New York? There's a problem with that. All right, so questions. Number one, is there really a morphine equivalent daily dose? I think no. Number two, how can the, how can the professional community, lawmakers and politicians and media, uh, muckrakers, all be wrong? Well, I don't know how they can be wrong, but I'm right and they're wrong. Okay, so um, uh, when determining uh, MED, uh, MEDD, you need to consider a number of things. Um, you need to consider combined opioid doses. So if, if you can't come up with a morphine equivalent for one drug and then you have a patient on two or three drugs, that, two or three opioids, that, that's even more of a problem. And then you throw in the mix of a drug interaction. For example, certain opioids are metabolized by 2D6 and 3A4 a number of these other drugs. So if you have a drug that's a pro-drug that's metabolized to a more active form uh, and, and you're giving, let's say, by 2D6 and you give a 2D6 inhibitor, how can that patient possibly be the same as another patient that's not, on, uh, for example, on sertraline, which is a 2D6 inhibitor? It, it's not possible. So then, and then there's disease interactions, all right, which also affects uh, the, the, the blood levels of these drugs. So, for example, if a kidney... If a kidney, if a kidney has person dysfunction, if a person has kidney dysfunction, all right, um, and they're unable to filter out the drug, or they have liver dysfunction and they're unable to metabolize the drug, 
either to an active or an inactive form, how could that person require the same dose as somebody who was identical to them? Uh, and then uh, the next question is, is it possible um, for them, for two patients to be identical? Well, that's kind of possible, but more probable, um, we, need, we need to be treating patients as individuals. So that raises the other issue of uh, weight, height, and, and organ function, um, and then pharmacogenetics, which I uh, just barely alluded to. So here are some pain guidelines. The first uh, guidelines uh, were the 2009 guidelines uh, with Roger Chu, Fancello, uh, very fine. I was the um, token pharmacist on, on that group. And at that time, uh, we said that, that we would consider a high-dose uh, opioids, a 200-milligram morphine equivalent. Again, um, that, that's, that's kind of a, um, it's a higher dose compared to what we're seeing now. And even back then, we used morphine equivalents, but recognized the fact that there's not a universally accepted one. And here are some of the other guidelines, uh, VA, DOD guidelines, et cetera. So um, here's the CDC guidelines. Uh, a portion of their uh, online, their online uh, splash, and it says, uh, uh, use extra precautions when increasing to above 50 MEE uh, morphine uh, equivalents uh, per day, such as. All right, and, and it, it lists them. Uh, and then down here it says, avoid or carefully justify using dosage to greater than or equal to 90 uh, morphine equivalents per day. All right? Uh, so my question to the CDC is, uh, is does somebody in the state of Washington, uh, is, is this the same for them as it is for New York, since my, the calculator in New York is different? I mean, are you going to list every state here? You know, if you're going to hold somebody accountable, and in, in, uh, in, in uh, Illinois, for example, um, their 80 milligrams is equivalent to 120 in New York and 65 in, in, in the state of Washington, who, who's right? So, uh, marking 100 milligram equivalent, uh, quote, recent evidence suggests that the use of dose conversion ratios published in equity tables may lead to fatal or near fatal opioid overdoses. This was published by uh, Webster and Fine uh, in 2012. And, and they suggest in a schematic that if you're going to convert a patient from one drug to the other, you slowly titrate the one drug up as you titrate the other one down. And we're going to see why that is in just a minute. So um, having recognized this a while back and seeing how the trends were going, um, in 2011, we set up a residency project in our hospital. Um, Dr. Shaw was involved in this. Uh, and and um, we, we decided to, to ask a, a, the question about opioid equivalents. So I'm just going to uh, take kind of a show of hands here. How many, uh, how many people in this audience, if you're going to convert a drug to a morphine, from one opioid to another, forget about morphine, but um, you have a patient on oxycodone, and you want to convert them to hydrocodone, or hydrocodone to methadone or whatever. How many people use the package insert to do that? Show of hands. Nobody. Okay. How many people uh, use primary literature? And so go pull, pull an article. So one. Okay. How many people use a textbook? Two. How many people? Three. How many people have textbooks? Okay. Um, how many people use, use a website? Okay. So more people. How, how many people use online opioid calculators? So almost everybody. Yeah, so that's, that's a disaster. It's a good thing, but it's a disaster. So, so uh, Dr. Shaw and myself 
um, did this study um, back in 2011. It was published in 2012. And we looked at various online calculators. Um, the, the, uh, the MedCal calculator was so pathetic, we couldn't include it in, in, the, uh, in the data. It was just it was ridiculous. Um, the state of Washington was interesting. I'm just going to leave it at that. So um, we, com- we compared uh, six of them, and we looked at the disparities. Now, it doesn't really matter what we used. So we, we used the uh, American Pain Society tables to measure all of them against each other. So it doesn't really matter which one you select, because we measured all of them against one equivalent. Okay? And we found that there was anywhere from minus 55% all the way up to a positive 242% disparity with these online calculators. The 55% were various opioids, um, and it, you know, this would, could result, obviously, in underdose uh, and cause problems for the patient. And uh, we found that 100% differences were found in fentanyl, and up to 242% differences found with methadone. And that's particularly interesting, since methadone accounts for 2% of all prescribed opioids when it's used for pain management, and it accounts for 33% of all opioid-related deaths. All right, so you'll wonder why we're having these problems. All right, so, so to blame them you know, on, on the things that they're being blamed on, I think we need to take a closer look. So um, this is a schematic um, that, that, uh, that I think is interesting, and one of the reasons why methadone is such a problem. So uh, back in 1998, uh, Merck and Dante, uh did a study in cancer patients. I think there was 38 patients in total. Um, and established that if a patient is between 30 and 90 milligrams of morphine equivalent and you want to switch them to, met- to methadone, it's a 3.7 to 1 ratio. If they're between 91 and 300 milligrams of, of, uh, of morphine equivalent, the dose ratio is 7.75 to 1. Um, and if it's 301 or higher, it's 12.25 to 1. So what this tells us is that the higher the dose of the opioid, the more potent methadone becomes, which kind of seems odd, um, and you need less methadone to replace the drug. So that's one reason that you need to start very, very low on methadone, um, even if the patient is opioid tolerant. So then Aaron Rindy came along, and Aaron Rindy thought, well, you know what, I'm, you know, Ripamonte, everybody's talking about Ripamonte, so I'm going to be famous, and I'm going to make a new schematic that has six data points instead of three, and it basically comes out the same. Um, and you would think that that would be more accurate. Uh, Merck and Dante thought that, that we couldn't remember 3.7 and rounded it to 4, and 7.75 rounded it to 8, and 2.25 rounded that to 12. These are all, uh, at least looking at them, seem pretty much the same. Um, I think that they're all idiotic. Uh, not, not the doctors. I, I think that the schematics are idiotic. The doctors are pretty smart guys. Um, uh, so... so um, what I did is establish a, um, a very simple equation. You can see down here. Um, and um, I, I did that uh, in, in order to smooth out the curve. And so this is why I think the schematics are idiotic. If you, if you look at um, Ripamontes was the first. So this is the, this is the bright pink one. Um, you, you can see what happens here. You've got these, these dips. Right? So and this is kind of crazy. Like, so, you know, if you're one milligram difference or half milligram difference, all of a sudden, the, the conversion changes. So Aaron Rindy's, which you would think would be better, is actually worse. Look at this. This is the purple one, six data points. And Merck and Dante's, the one that, that you know, changed 2.75 to 3, 
that, that was super implausible. That doesn't really make any difference at all. All right? So this is what, what um, I did. Um, actually, I did this with my son, who was an engineering student at the time. Uh, we, we, we graphed this all out, and it made sense. We'd, come, we'd use the bottom of the curve and use the most conservative uh, line. Now, the reason that that's important is because if you look at Emmerich Mindy's, um, 300 milligrams of morphine equals 60 milligrams of methadone, but 302.5 milligrams of morphine equals 30 milligrams of methadone. Imagine what happens if you put that in an opioid conversion calculator. All right, so what's conservative in one direction is liberal in the other direction. And, this is, and these are the points at which people die. Okay? Um, and they don't die until it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like rat poison. You know, you give, you give dicumarol to a rat, and they go away and they die someplace else you know, five or seven days later, and the other rats don't know why they died. It's the same thing. They die five or seven days later from the methadone because it's got a high volume of distribution. Uh, this is uh, transdermal fentanyl. Um, and uh, you can actually pull this Donner uh, chart right out of uh, Dr. McPherson's book, uh, Demystifying uh, Opioid Conversion Calculations. Uh, this, this, uh, uh, so this is Donner. This is the original package insert from a brand named Dorogesic, which is the same kind of schematic you see in all transdermal fentanyl uh, products. And they took a conservative approach, and rightfully so. Uh, but of course, the whole world is not going to be converted to, to their product. Right? So they took a conservative approach, and the FDA loved that. And they said between 60 and 134 milligrams of morphine equivalent, you need a 25 microgram patch. And that between 135 and 224 milligrams, you'd need a 50 microgram patch. Well, interestingly, uh, they say between 135 and 224 for 50 micrograms. And Donner said, no, it's 91 to 150. You act, is a, is, so, so Donner was less conservative, which is probably true. The problem is, if you take any of these conversions and just make a simple equation, all right, and you put it into a calculator using the conservative conversion, what happens if you go the opposite way? It's liberal, right? So, so um, I did not release the... Um, so the practical pain management... Um, I guess I should probably have put this in my, in my disclosures, because I, I didn't think of it until just now. So I was one of the people uh, that was involved in writing the practical pain management opioid calculator. And when they approached me, I said, I will only do it under certain circumstances. And those circumstances are that we're going to have to over, we're never going to overcome all the flaws, but all the obvious flaws of the other calculators we're going to have to overcome or I will not be involved in it. And one of them is, before the extended release hydrocodones came out, you're going to have to have a, a, a red warning pop up saying that if a patient's going to be converted to hydrocodone and it exceeds the, the dose because of acetaminophen, that you need to select another opioid so that you can bring the opioid dose up because otherwise the patient will die from acetaminophen. Um, and there was other things on there. One of the things that we did is I said we need to have two equations in the background that people won't see so that fentanyl conversion remains conservative in both directions. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to get rid of uh, Ripamonte's conversion from methadone, and we're going to use uh, what was copyrighted as the Feudin factor, which was the methadone equation, because it's, it, it's not 100%, but I believe it's safer. All right? um, so you still have to go stepwise, and that equation will tell you what the approximate target might be, recognizing that the half-life of methadone is uh, 15 to 30. 60 hours up to 150, depending on the phenotype of the patient. So even if we knew what the conversion from methadone is, then it may not be the same for me 
than it is, for example, with Dr. Pham over there, because Dr. Pham is Asian, and he's got different cytochrome 2D6 enzymes probably than I have. And we probably have a redhead out there someplace that probably doesn't have as many as I have. So um, those are important factors with methadone conversion, even if we could come up with an exact, uh, uh, exact uh, um, equation. This is the schematic of fentanyl 100 microgram patches, and this shows you, uh, the shaded area shows you the standard deviation. So I know that a patient that's on a 25 microgram hour patch, a 25 microgram per hour fentanyl patch, um, I know that their serum level should be about 0.6 nanograms per mil. But I also know that the standard deviation is 0.3 nanograms per mil in either direction. Okay, so even if we could get the math right, we also have that problem. So um, uh, we decided to do a survey uh, with another group of residents uh, two years ago. And this was actually just published in uh, 2000 and, uh, and uh, I don't even remember, 2013, I guess. Um, so I don't know if any of the authors are in here. I don't think so, but they all flew home. Uh, anyway, um, so what we did is uh, uh, we, we looked at um, opioid equivalents. We did a survey, uh, and we ultimately ended up with 362 available uh, surveys to, to see um, uh, it, what, what you folks would, would do. So we gave nurse practitioners, PAs, pharmacists, and physicians um, these five different fixed doses. And we said to them, um, we would like for you to convert these things over to a morphine equivalent. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, so um, we ended up with 319, and this is, what we, this is what we're looking at here. So for fentanyl, it was 166 morphine equivalents plus or minus 115 milligrams. That's, that's higher than the cutoffs from many states, just the standard deviation. Um, and this was, in pain, this was with pain management people. Palliative care people, it was 168 plus or minus 57. Uh, if, if it weren't either palliative care or pain management, so presumably primary care or others, it was 177 milligrams plus or minus 124. That's fentanyl. Remember, that was a 100% difference with the opioid conversion calculators. Methadone. The most deaths with methadone, right? So um, for pain management, it was 162 milligrams uh, plus or minus 111 milligrams. For palliative care, it was 251, significantly more than 162, plus or minus 166. And for none of the above, it was 169 plus or minus 115. That's pretty pathetic. So even if we had, even if we had a universal conversion, look, look at what we're dealing with here, all right? So it would be really hard, to, I guess, to hold a, a provider accountable uh, for, for going outside of this. You know, what, if, what if you were, let's say, living in, um, in Oklahoma, and then you moved to Washington, and, 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 you, um, and you got a license in Washington as a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner or as a physician, and they said, well, you're outside the equivalent. Well, not, we're not, I'm not outside Oklahoma's equivalent. What do you, what do you, you people in Washington, they, you, it's not right. I mean, it's just absurd. So here's another thing, and this is probably the simplest, of, uh, uh, the simplest, but forget about pharmacokinetics and everything else. Even if it were a universally accepted opioid equation or opioid equivalence, you know, does a 110-pound person get the same dose as a 220-pound person? I mean, if you give this person, presumably, uh, 20 milligrams of oxycodone in this person might be equivalent to... 10 milligrams in this person. Did the CDC guidelines account for that? 
Are they dosing by milligram per kilogram or just the entire world gets the same dose, if we even know what that dose is? Then we have this, patient response and, and variability by, by, um, by pharmacogenetic differences. So you can have the same diagnosis and the same medications in a patient group, and depending on the phenotype for each of the isoenzymes, you can have efficacy and toxicity, no efficacy and no toxicity, efficacy and no toxicity, or no efficacy and toxicity. Why? Because all these people have different isoenzymes uh, with cytochrome. So they can, be, uh, they can be a poor, intermediate, extensive, or rapid metabolizer for each one of the isoenzymes. All right? So we can't just look at pharmacogenetics, I mean pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics. We have to look at this. And this slide uh, tells you that about 25% of all drugs, of all drugs, now so we're not just talking about the opioids, go through this system. That's important because the other drugs that you're taking may affect, may affect the, the opioid that you're taking because they may induce or inhibit the enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing the opioids. And this uh, kind of hits that concept home. So codeine relies on 2D6 to convert it to methylmorphine and entomorphine. Um, oxycodone depends on 3A4 to convert it to noroxycodone, which is inactive. But it also depends on 2D6 to convert it to oxymorphone, which is twice as potent, at least we think, somewhere between a third and, and, and twice as potent. For hydrocodone, it's 2D6 to hydromorphone and 3A4 to norhydromorphone. Uh, buprenorphine relies on 3A4. Fentanyl relies on 3A4. Methadone relies on 2D6, 2C19. Um, a little bit of 1A2, 3A4, 3A5. Um, and I probably forgot one. So uh, 2B6, which is important for the, for the um, S enantiomer. So that's important. Uh, this chart shows you that, that uh, here's a bunch of drugs, it's not all of them, but a bunch of drugs that go through the cytochrome system, and then there's five drugs that go, undergo phase two metabolism only, which do not go through that system. Why is that important? Should you put everybody in these drugs? Well, not necessarily, but it's important. So, so let's just go through the drugs. It's, it's morphine, oxyco uh, um, morphine, oxymorphone, uh, hydromorphone, Depensadol and levorfenol are the five drugs that do not go through the cytochrome system. This is important because if you have a patient that's on oxycodone and you're an ultra-rapid uh, 3A4 metabolizer and, and a poor 2D6 metabolizer, that means you're not making the more active form of oxycodone and you're taking the parent drug oxycodone and very quickly metabolizing it to the active form. That means you could tolerate much, much higher doses of oxycodone. So if you use the CDC guidelines and keep the patient at 50 milligrams and convert this patient on high-dose oxycodone because of their phenotype, let's say they're one of these drugs because you think you're being smart, all right? Um, and even if you reduce by 50%, you can still kill the patient because this one does not go through the cytochrome system and phenotype doesn't matter, at least with regard to cytochrome. Um, okay, this just lists a bunch of different opioids and, and, uh, and how they are metabolized, and you have that. Uh, in your slide handouts. Here are all the isoenzymes uh, that involve methadone. Uh, this shows you P-glycoprotein, which is another variant. So if a patient is on a P-glycoprotein inhibitor, a P-glycoprotein is responsible for putting the drug back into the gut. So morphine, for example, the morphine doesn't involve cytochrome, but P-glycoprotein is responsible for pulling morphine back into the gut 
so it gets pooped out. So less morphine gets absorbed into the blood. So if you give a P-glycoprotein inhibitor, like tilapavir, for example, um, then there's going to be less morphine pulled back in, and the blood levels of morphine are going to go up. Uh, the same is true with methadone. Methadone relies on P-glycoprotein for absorption. So if you put a patient on, you think if there's any patients in the world that are on methadone and, and the antiviral for hepatitis C, tilapavir, you think that ever happens? Yeah, probably, because those patients inject drugs, right? So you have the patient on tilapavir, now, induction for enzymes takes three weeks. Inhibition only takes 48 hours. So a patient goes to an infectious disease doctor, they're on chronic methadone, the doctor prescribes tilapavir, and two days later the patient dies. Okay? Uh, and it turns out that P-glycoprotein is also responsible for passage of methadone through the blood-brain barrier. So if you give tilapavir, the methadone increases. Tilapavir is also a 3A4 inhibitor. The metabolism decreases, and then the methadone increases going past the blood-brain barrier. So uh, in conclusion, there are a number of factors that influence opioid toxicity uh, and subtherapeutic dosing, uh, pharmacogenetics and P450 and P-glycoprotein absorption and kinetics are extremely important, but not included in the CDC guidelines. Um, the no universal mathematical opioid conversion should be ubiquitously accepted by any clinicians, anybody in this room. And to accept a, a morphine-equivalent daily dose criteria without considering unique patient characteristics compromises patient safety and is really, in my mind, shameful. Thank you. We're going to have some time for question and answer after I talk, um, so we'll um, get to this. Um, uh, great job by Jeff in talking about the science of this. Uh, yesterday, um, I'm sure some of you were at the uh, symposium that Charlie Argoff, Jeff, and I did on pharmacogenomics. We really got into it, and Jeff mentioned death numerous times, and Charlie, you know, insisted that Jeff is obsessed with death. And today, I just counted in 25 minutes, he only talked about death four times. So I think that Charlie's intervention has been successful. Jeff and I, I have no disclosures here. Jeff and I have been very um, pissed off about this. Um, I mean, really pissed off the point where in this calendar year, I think we have three, four publications that uh, together that have the term MEDD myth, okay, from peer-reviewed to not peer-reviewed, but we're trying to get the word out. And we think it's real important to talk about this here, particularly to frontline providers, because the wool is being pulled over your eyes. Um, I'm a part-time clinician, part-time researcher. I'm not the scientist that Jeff is, nowhere near, but I do run a research journal and so I'm going to talk about some ethical concerns in research very briefly. Um, you know, we have to keep in mind that this concept of MEDD or some variation of MEDD has been used in the research since 1960. So we're going on over 55 years. And however, the problems with the validity of the concept have been elucidated for 40 years and we're still using it. Does anyone else find that to be insane? I mean, absolutely insane? Yet, you know, again, if we look at the equalangesic tables that Jeff spoke about, they've only changed minimally over the last 40 years. So, you know, there's empirical evidence, and no one's paying attention to it. And unfortunately, from a research perspective, the researchers continue to compare apples to oranges, and I think that Jeff elucidated it very clearly that, you know, the standard deviation is greater than the total dosage in certain cases. 
So really put simply, research using invalid dependent variables, and we know now that MEDD is you know, invalid, is invalid research. And that's a problem because you as clinicians depend on the research in order to practice clinically in an effective and a safe manner. Although, of course, it's very convenient. Convenient is the big word. And ethically, research on the impact of intervention is going to have to start looking at the levels of morphine individually, hydrocodone individually, oxycodone individually, and so on and so on. Yet, I was asked to be part of a BACORI grant, and I brought this up, and they said, well, we're going to just throw you off the grant. And I said, that's fine. I'll write about what you're doing. That didn't make them any too happy. So the scientists out there, or the pseudoscientists, as I call them, who rely on MEDD claim that an inability to use this concept would make research onerous. Wouldn't that be a shame if doing research were hard? I've got a 17-year-old son who's in the process of applying to college, and he's in his senior year, and doing all that stuff that anyone had a senior at one point. He goes, it's really hard. And what do we tell our kids? Life is hard. Well, research, good research is hard. You know, I'm getting a lot of whining from the researchers out there. So, you know, a recent article attempted to synthesize morphine equivalents for opioid utilization studies, and Nielsen colleagues wrote, as the intent of publishing these conversion factors is to offer transparent methods to calculate oral morphine equivalents for research purposes, these calculations do not reflect these individual factors that may be important in clinical practice. So, you know, what I'm trying to say here is all this research is a lot of crap at this point. And I'm the editor-in-chief of a rising research journal. And I just think it's junk. And it's going to continue to be junk unless some of us in the research community yell and scream. So calls have been made for a paradigmatic revision in the way that medical research is conducted. One size fits all, does not work, work clinically, and it certainly doesn't work empirically. Pain researchers are not happy about what I see as an imperative of outcome research becoming more complicated, more onerous, as they say. Um, so they keep on using this ridiculous concept, irrespective of the ethical implications of conducting research that does not inform clinical practice. So here's several of my research colleagues with their data, you know, and they don't want to hear this. But I'm going to spend the, most of this time here, the little bit of time that I have, is talking about the ethical concerns regarding using MEDD in the prescribing guidelines, because that's a real problem, and Jeff alluded to it briefly. So while the research is worrisome, the ethical implications associated with developing opioid pra uh, prescribing guidelines based on this kind of flawed concept, I think it's horrific. You know, there was a time when opioid prescribing committees had integrity. And they produce generally unbiased, evidence-based, as opposed to agenda-based guidelines. For example, 2009, the American Pain Society, American Academy of Pain Medicine, clinical guidelines for the use of chronic opioid therapy in chronic non-cancer pain. It was far from a perfect document. No one suggested it was perfect. But it was relatively well-balanced. And in a systematic review done by Knuckles and colleagues, they rated it extremely highly in terms of being impartial and accurate. 
But the recent guidelines continue, you know, are, are very, very arbitrary. They tend to be disingenuous in suggesting that safer and more effective treatments are readily available. So you know, the famous Washington State Medical Directors Group um, you know, that started this law rolling. Well, last year, I was invited to be part of the group, and we rewrote the guidelines. And we get in there, and the first thing they say is, okay, we're going to knock it down from 120 milligrams morphine equivalent per day to 50 milligrams morphine equivalent per day. And I raised my hand, and I said, why? And for whom? Well, everyone knows it's safe. Um, can you show me the research? Mind you, these are all researchers. None of these people see patients. Well, the research isn't there, but common sense says, so you're going to do common sense guideline? So fortunately, I had a couple of other supporters in there, good researchers, and we said we have bombs attached to our cells, and we'll detonate and blow up the room. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's back to 120. You know, I convinced them, let's keep it at 120, which is ridiculously arbitrary and based on MEDD, which doesn't exist. But let's not arbitrarily lower it to 50. Let's use the next several years to collect data. And if you can empirically establish that 50 is not only safer, but better than 120, the next time we meet, I'll be happy to be less of a pain in the rear end. Still made these people very angry. So the recent CDC guideline has hit an all-time low in my eyes. And at the American Academy of Pain Medicine uh, conference next year, Jeff and I and some others are going to be talking about that. Um, at least five members of PROP, five board members, the Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescribing, which makes the rest of us irresponsible, provided input as core expert group, stakeholder review group, or peer review, uh, review panel members, five of them. And interestingly, you know, we had six prop board members in Washington out of 20. And they've got an agenda, okay? Many of us, including Jeff and I, have opined that prop is radically anti-opioid. And we've been threatened with legal action because we've said, you're radically anti-opioid. Oh, no, well, no, no, we're not, said one gentleman who founded the group a number of years ago. If my mother were dying of cancer, do you think I'd deprive her of an opioid? So that's when an opioid's okay. But a lot of you practice in rural areas. And in rural areas, there's not this wealth of treatments out there. Even in Seattle, we don't have interdisciplinary chronic pain management because no one will pay for it in the state of Washington. So the opioids remain important. And if they only go to Andrew Kolodny's dying mother, then that's a problem because there are millions and millions and millions of people out there for whom there's no answer other than opioid analgesia. Mind you, in my practice, I spend half my time taking people off of opioids. I'm not pro-opioid. I'm not anti-opioid. I'm pro-patient. But this group is radically anti-opioid. And they've not sued us yet. So anyway, because of the input of the CDC group and the, the makeup of the group, it represents a conflict of interest, I'm sorry. And that makes the guideline highly unethical. And those of you who know me, I'm an ethics guy. Um, and it also, of course, makes it invalid. What are these committees, Washington State, you know, CDC, favorite tool of terror? It's MEDD. 
again, as we rely upon this invalid concept, it further invalidates the guidelines that use it as a basis. You know, as I mentioned, Washington State, and again, got them to back down. They became enraged with me. Can't make a lot of friends. Um, now, a study was done in 2015 on opioid-induced respiratory depression, not to sound like my dear friend Jeff, but that causes death. Okay? Death, I'll say it again. I'm trying to catch up with you. I'm trying to become as fixated as you are, brother. Um, and determined that the risk of, no, of opioid-induced respiratory depression, Jeff, with daily doses as low as 20 milligrams morphine equivalent can occur. And a big part of that, of course, is that 20 milligrams of morphine equivalent is not necessarily 20 milligrams of morphine equivalent. But also determined that there were some other risk factors that you know, risk increased with, for example, non-Hispanic white race, male gender, being widowed, more health care utilization, living in the western region of the United States, various organ diseases, skin ulcers, serious mental illness, traumatic injury, antidepressant use, and others. But where's the focus? Morphine equivalent daily dosage. That's the only thing that counts. All these other variables, they don't count. Um, do the guidelines ever mention these risk factors? Nah. If they weren't so focused on the invalid concept of MEDD, I think they would. And perhaps these committees' errors of omission are the result of an error of commission. The emphasis on morphine equivalent daily dosage prevents prescribing guidelines from clearly elucidating the big picture of opioids' potential dangers. Okay? I'm not one of these people who says, oh, give your patients opioids. Just they're not, they're not unsafe. You know, I saw a presentation yesterday, and they talked about a systematic review of the rate of addiction, and they, you know, that looked at a bunch of things regarding opioids, and they said, after they talked about this wonderful systematic review, they said the rate of addiction was at 0.14 to 0.27 percent, and this is a systematic review, but but that was highly underestimated. So these two very bright presenters talked about you know, how good, you know, the systematic review was, and then said, uh, except when it came to addiction, because we all know it's higher. We just know that. Pseudoscience, it's not real. It's simply agenda-driven, and it's simply convenient, and it's simply, from an ethical perspective, an abomination. And it puts people like you, who are prescribing in the trenches in a very difficult place, So, again, Beth Darnell, who's spoken here, I'm sure so many of you have seen her, we've posited that we don't need to focus so much on how much opioid we give. We have to focus on to whom we prescribe opioids. And that's a better, better area on which to focus. So, again, it leaves you out in the trenches, all of you prescribers, physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners, dazed and confused and very frightened. These guidelines are supposedly voluntary. But, you know, it says the recommendations in the guideline are voluntary rather than prescriptive standards. You know, could any claim possibly be more disingenuous? Okay? We know that formal research on the chilling effect is very rare, the chilling effect of these guidelines. But the MEDD-based CDC guidelines potential to become de facto law is very real. 
states are already passing more draconian legislation. And what are they doing? They're saying, well, the CDC guideline says that this is the truth, even if it's based on a flawed concept, even if it's, you know, the deck is very inappropriately stacked with the anti-opioid zealots. So, you know, great. It's consistent with the CDC guidelines, so Massachusetts and other states look to pass legislation that are going to cripple physicians and, more importantly, cripple the patients with chronic pain for whom there are no other answers. And it was written not by someone who is into the treatment of chronic non-cancer pain, but from the American Cancer Society. Clearly, the intent of CDC is that the guideline be distributed to and adopted by state public health agency entities and certifying organizations as if it had the legal authority of a regulation. So thus, it is becoming de facto law. So anecdotal evidence on the chilling effect has abounded. I mean, in the state of Washington, I can't get anyone to prescribe an opioid anymore. It's very different than when I moved there 11 years ago. So it's gone beyond the anecdotal, however. Okay, a couple of newspaper articles. Prescription drug crackdown makes it hard for some to obtain needed pain pills. You know, Tenova, big health care system in Tenova, in uh, Tennessee, uh, to stop prescribing opiates for long-term care. You know, the chilling effect is also having an adverse impact on primary care systems' willingness to prescribe. You know, our system does not prescribe anymore. Sorry. Our hospital does not do chronic opioid therapy anymore. And who owns the primary care practices? In many cases, it's the hospitals. So as a result, physicians are forced to discontinue chronic opioid therapy rather abruptly, even in the most adherent patients. I'm seeing that in Washington. It can't be the only place. And this is particularly problematic given that pain specialists are growing more and more disinterested in prescribing. They'd rather do an injection because they make a lot more money doing an injection than they do spending time you know, performing appropriate risk mitigation and prescribing medications. And we know, of course, that pain specialists have become less likely to prescribe opioids than our primary care providers, which makes the Washington State MEDD-based guideline requiring referral to a pain specialist requiring, uh, required for high doses prescribing, ludicrous. So it happens. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Primary care doc refers to a pain specialist, you know, someone who's board certified in pain of some sort. And they say, I'm going to send him over to Shatman and let him evaluate the patient and then tell me and then I'll tell the primary care doctor. That's ridiculous. So with MEDD-based guidelines, physicians' primary fears uh, seem to be regulatory scrutiny and sanction. Uh, Bob Jamison and colleagues up at Harvard did a study and found almost half of primary care docs expressed this fear. In a, a re, you know, in, even though they were provided with training on tracking compliance, and that did not reduce this fear. You know, it's like you know, the cat is out of the bag. So I see using this concept to inform prescribing practices highly unethical in two ways. Number one, it scares the daylights out of you as prescribers. Is any of you who's a prescriber not fearful at all? Heck, I don't prescribe. I just advise, and I'm fearful. And it certainly reinforces misconceptions regarding dependence versus addiction, thereby further marginalizing an already very stigmatized 
population and victimized population of patients who suffer from the disease of chronic pain. So MEDD is a badly flawed concept. The anti-opioid zealots, they know it. They know it, and they say, oh, oh but it's a, it's a standard. These people empirically are really good scientists, some of them, but they say the hell with the science. Researchers are indeed in a difficult bind. MEDD is a convenient or handy concept when opioid consumption is a studies-dependent variable, yet researchers in pain medicine, I see them as having a fiduciary obligation to provide valid research, not the crap that's coming out based on MEDD. And, of course, the integrity of your practice patterns is going to depend on valid, honest research. Researchers continuing to use MEDD are far less egregious, in my eyes, in doing so than are the prescribing guideline committee members. The recent CDC guideline is not about science. It's purely about an agenda. American politics in general, as we watch CNN, become all about propaganda. And so has American pain medicine. They're not telling the truth consistently inside the Beltway, nor are they necessarily doing so in Atlanta, which is the home of the CDC. So what can you as prescribers do about this MEDD myth that Jeff has elucidated scientifically and I have elucidated in terms of ethical concerns and the, and the havoc that it's causing, because it is causing ha havoc in the trenches? Challenge the laws that stem from the myth. When your state proposes these draconian laws, you know, talking yesterday about the you know, seven-day maximum you know, on initial after, after initial injury and you know, a, a three-day maximum in another state as long as you can prescribe. Um, so, you know, write op-ed pieces. Try to organize your peers. Okay? Your state, wherever you practice, cannot afford to have its prescribers disgruntled. And given the shortage of primary care docs, which is expected to hit 66,000 by 2025, excuse me, the state cannot afford to have its primary care docs unhappy. <coughs> state medical societies can be powerful entities. Most importantly, do not pull a Nancy Reagan. Do not just say no to opioid prescribing. Okay? Yeah, it's hard. You know it's hard. But sometimes it is the right thing to do. Recognize the pharmacogenetic differences. That, that pharmacogenetic uh, uh, difference, I'm sorry, calls for personalized medicine. Each of our patients is not a, um, you know, a study of a thousand. Our studies of a thousand patients regarding opioids are garbage. I'd rather see a thousand studies with an N of one than one study with an N of a thousand because each of our patients is unique genetically and through a number of personality variables. Your 10 milligrams of morphine, as Jeff very uh, nicely pointed out, is not necessarily the same as mine, except in pharmacogenomics will ultimately make the MEDD myth obsolete. And I think it's going to happen rather quickly. Until then, you're obligated to respect your patient's phenomenological experiences of pain as well as of relief. Thank you. <laughs>